Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply. This is One Hate Minute. Drop of a hat, these guys will rock and roll. What's your name? Wayne Grove. Look like gangbangers working the local 7-Eleven. Robbery homicides take you. Give me all you got! Give me all you got! I do what I do best. I take scores. You do what you do best. I'm trying to stop guys like me. A podcast dedicated to all 170 minutes of Michael Mann's L.A. crime opus, Heat, one minute at a time. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to One Heat Minute. I'm your host, Blake Howard. Thank you so much for listening. This is, of course, the crime opus that excavates Michael Mann's crime opus, Heat, a minute at a time. And we certainly did that for all 166 pre-credits minutes. But now we're in a very special mini-series, which we're calling The Heat 2 Book Club. We are doing six episodes, one per part. This is episode five for part five, Paraguay, 1996. It's actually the shortest part of the book, but deceptively a, li- a lengthy and great conversation coming up. Two phenomenal guests. One, the terrific Connor O'Donnell. You would hear him on the B-Side podcast. He works over at the film stage. He is a sensational chatter about all kinds of movies and especially in this corridor this like purple patch of the 90s is somewhere i love talking to connor also connor attended the actual special heat anniversary screening with me was there his beautiful wife gave me uh, my galley's copy of heat 2 which i'll be forever appreciative of so you get to listen to that conversation with connor first up before diving into a conversation with the incredible justin lieberman filmmaker lecturer educator former michael mann assistant who's been a frequent guest on both miami nice and collateral confessions he's back 
to dive into this because really no one knows the inside workings of Michael Mann's brain and the forward pass offices like our man, Justin Lieberman. So let's dive into it. Part five, Paraguay, 1996. On the way home, Chris stops by the post office box, feeling strong enough to throw the dice today and take whatever comes. He opens his box. His heart drops a heavy beat. There's a letter from Charlene. It's been sitting there for a week. He walks down the narrow cacophonous street to Cafe Damascus, where he sits. The waiter brings him a cup of coffee and chipper. He knows what will happen when he opens the letter. Inside are photos of his beautiful son, of Charlene holding Dominic and kneeling beside him on a beach. Charlene's letter says, I love you, baby. We miss you. We need you. He's not a ghost. Not to her. Not to his son. He's real. The streets outside rumble with the fray of commerce today. Tomorrow, the horizon promises the domains he can create. His history abruptly feels dated. What the hell was it? Neil McCauley, Michael Torito, Chris Chihalis, Treo. With all their expertise, what were they? They were maybe the best, but at what? being 19th century banditos robbing banks. He feels alive and vital in this present, the electric now, and all at once, his life feels spectral, tenuous. He holds tight to the photo. Most of you guys know that I went to New York City to see a special anniversary screening of Heat at the Tribeca Film Festival. I went along there for the most insane, sleepless trip. I was awake for more hours than Vincent Hanna was in the duration of the end of Heat and the beginning of Heat 2. And when I went to this screening, uh, one of the true pleasures of the night was catching up with the man I'm talking to today, a buddy who I'd caught up with many times online, who's uh, worked with Film Stage and the Cinephile Game Night, like... I think kept uh, film Twitter friendly. It was like a really harmonious place um, at times. So it was so good to see so many of the different, you know, personalities and people all across film Twitter getting together, talking shit, having a having a blast. Often like drinking at different times of the day together, and it was really great. But this man's lovely partner Brittany did something that I want to share with everyone here. The galley's copy of Heat 2 that was available there on a table, which I've now destroyed because I've ripped it up into pieces to note, scribble notes all over it, um, was actually not made available to me. Like I didn't get a chance to get my hands on it when I was at that screening because as I've told on this very podcast, I was out the back with the great Bill Garibiri talking to Robert De Niro and and being in the presence of Al Pacino and and meeting Art Linson and which was all insane. But when I got out, I was like, oh, I missed a copy of Heat Two. And Connor O'Donnell, the man I'm talking to today, his partner Brittany said, "Well, we got two copies. It seems kind of stupid that you don't have a copy." And she handed me her galley, so I have that in my hand. Connor O'Donnell from the Film Stage, from the great B-Side podcast, friend of the show, man. Thank you so much for coming down and uh, and talking to me. And thank you and your lovely wife for giving this to me. 
hey, I well, I like to think that this wouldn't have happened without that moment. So <laughs> no, which is obviously <laughs> untrue. But uh, uh, no, no, I think you, it's fair to say. Um, no, it, it definitely would have happened. I'll let but... her know she got the shout out too. She'll be thrilled. She'll so, actually listen to a podcast that I'm on for once. <laughs> I, I very, very recently uh, the Spotify Wrapped happens, and I found out that I was only the fourth uh, podcast on my wife's list, and I was like, "This is betrayal, <laughs> betrayal." Amazing. Actually, no, it actually makes sense. And I'm so happy that I'm not. That would be kind of strange. Um, uh, you know, that's just my opinion. Like, if your wife listens to your podcast, bless you. But I, you know, uh, we have other things to do. Who's going to look after the children? Um, now, man, thank you so much. We're talking about part five, Paraguay, 1996, a short part of the book. But I wanted to get mm-hmm. you on the show because I know that you and I have talked many times, I'm, which I'm so grateful for, both on podcast and in person about heat. So I was excited to talk to you about heat too. You obviously read the book. Um, I got to see photos of your Instagram and socials of you reading the book, I think on a holiday break at the time yeah. when you first consumed it. So I wanted to sort of just talk, um, hyper-focus in on on everything about part five that we can talk about, but then just more broadly get your feelings of the overall book. So let's start with the overall feelings. You, I know, like us, I think the whole crew that we had in that New York screening festival, we're all a bit like, we all find Heat to be a sacred text. We're all a bit nervous. And so when you were reading it, what were your initial impressions? And, uh, you know, was was it a a one cohesive experience? What was it like? Tell me everything about it. Um, It was interesting. So I, and I actually, I, um, I've now gone through it twice uh because in i'd finished it and then when you invited me to come on i actually decided like let me blaze through the audiobook too just to like refresh right which was its own very fun experience yes um but um no i the first thing that struck me and i think this is i think this is true of a lot of michael mann's work in general was i was like if this wasn't made by michael mann i might think this was trash <laughs> yeah yeah um and which is to say like there's a lot of and i think where it first hit me um overall like was just the the first flashback to 1988 and that whole sequence where uh Shaherless meets um charlene right and the way certain things in that sequence are described and stuff it's so pulpy it's so like overwritten but it's one of those things that just because i knew it was like i mean obviously with the help of megan gardner and i'm not sure how they exactly split up writing duties but just to know that it had the blessing of michael mann i was like no i'm okay with it because it just (laughs) it it's i i don't know um he can he only, only get away. He can only get away with it, Connor. You, you and I, we yeah. talked on your great podcast, B sides. It's like certain filmmakers who take material elevate the material. Like that's just what it is. It's like you could give the Miami Vice script, and I'm and I and I've said this a few times with. That's Katie a great example. Miami Vice is a perfect example of what I'm talking about. If you took sure. Miami Vice the script and gave it to someone else, it would be hot garbage. It would not work the way that the lines like read if you just yeah. read them on paper. All those things, it just doesn't work. But when you add it in with this expressionistic, impressionistic view of the landscape, the camera, the choices that he's making, the actor's choices that he's making, all those things, it starts it starts to evolve in a way that you go, oh, 
I actually it's a piece of a it's a piece it's a, of a hole. It's, it's a piece it's, of a hole. It's of a yeah. piece of the thing. It's not yeah. It's not just like oh, I'm a mercenary for hire. It's like every element of it is scrutinized to the to the death, so that he can make it exactly as he is intending to make it. Yeah, and I I, I think that's a hard thing to communicate. Maybe to like you know a, a normal person, <laughs> if I'm being honest, like just like actually just recently my family I have a lot of siblings and we, we were just firing off book recommendations from the year and of course you know i have a lot of brothers that probably would like this book but also probably would be like oh this is like airport trash like what is it? you know like so <laughs> yeah. i like didn't fire it off as a recommendation because i was like i don't if they don't like love my having got there by now you might yeah, never, I, yeah i don't know if they will and that that said it i think it is on its face a very entertaining book uh that that anybody who likes crime fiction uh, would probably like if they were familiar enough with the characters. But even then, I think the prologue does a pretty good job of like taking care of that, even if you've never seen Heat, which like yes. why haven't you? You should fix that. <laughs> but like, but 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 why but are you reading aside, Heat too? Yeah. Like, you know? <laughs> right, right. Um that said, I I think it really um it does such a good job, and I'm sure other people have said this at this point. I know you've recorded a lot of different people talking about this, so I'm sure I'm not the only one, but you can immediately see it. Yes. Um, immediately. And it's it's I think it's helped by there's so much baggage you take with you just from the first movie and, and how lived in those performances are. Yes. Um, it actually kind of depressed me a little bit as I started reading this. I think I, I think I said as much on Twitter <laughs> or something was that the biggest thing that hurt was that I can see every moment of Val Kilmer in this book. Like I can see, I yeah. can see so beautifully the Val Kilmer performance that like, I just, that kind of, it was both wonderful that like the character kind of was informed by that and got to live in a certain way. And at the same time, I found it monumentally depressing. <laughs> yes. But, um, and I think that pervades all of the, all, all of the way, all of the characters are written. I think the biggest shocker overall, not shocker, but what I, what I was not actually expecting was to get like an origin story on the, you know, leave behind anything, yes. you know, in 30 seconds flat like i was actually not expecting to get like a slightly different version of like a more tender neil mccauley and i love that because i think it helps do what any great prequel should do which is it should help to bolster and reinform your opinion about the thing you already know right yes. and um i did you know th this isn't necessarily my my own thought, because I did listen to your episode one that dropped uh, before you and I were recording this. I listened to it last night, and one of your guests mentioned that like it really does elevate the to me what was the weakest part of the movie itself, which is the Edie relationship and how yes. it doesn't really track. And when you know what you know about Neil from the book, it all like. I have not actually rewatched the movie since I read the book, so I think that'll be an interesting exercise. Um, but that all clicked for me in a really beautiful way. And another thing that I think, and, you know, we can use this as maybe a dovetail into the, the part that we're going to talk about, but another thing that I loved, um, particularly as it relates to like what they do with the Chris Shaharlis character is you really do see how much his gambling addiction, like eats away at him and how much that informs, so many of the decisions that he makes there are lines that are dropped in the movie and there are you know 
it's it's certainly something you're aware of if you're watching the movie. And she obviously, uh, Charlene, even calls him out on it in the movie uh, directly, right? That he's a gambling junkie. Um, but I don't think you necessarily square I mean, the bookies, it, baby. Square the bookies, baby. Yeah, <laughs> I I think uh, I don't think you know it's it, it feels that pervasive of a of a um a problem, and I think obviously that's because he's part of an ensemble in that, and in this he's kind of more staged at front and center uh compared to neil and hannah but um but that i think is something i really loved throughout all of the chris segments of the book just that like he compares almost every feeling he has to the way it feels when he gets like a gambling rush right and 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 how he you get the idea that he he's able to square those impulses when he substitutes them for something else, right? And 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 it's and he that. substitutes them for gambling with his life. Yeah, yeah, like, exactly. The it's like ex- the, ex- exactly. It, the gambling and, addiction has moved away from the literalization of like I'm going to go gamble money and I'm going to lose money. It's like I'm yeah. going to put myself in situations where the gamble is I'm going to gamble with myself as the stake in this thing. Right. I think and, that that really tracks. That for me, I was like, oh, that tracks. Like, you and the real tragedy that. that that you feel that he feels like what he does not want is when other people get caught up in that, right? Like he, I think, feels very remorseful about like how these things, not unlike his gambling addiction and the way it affected his family, but how like, you know, it results in Chirito getting killed. And, you know, like he, he doesn't necessarily want to take other people with him. He will if he has to, if that's part of it, right? If that's part of the objective in front of him, but like it's never, it's never an aim otherwise um and i think that's sort of important to note too um but yeah i overall i i i love the book i just think it it puts me at such ease especially when you hear me you know but because we were at that screen that tribeca screening and i think by that time the news had already broken that man was like yeah i really want to make it a movie right and um and we all kind of talked about like okay i don't know and we hadn't read the book yet and i do feel more at ease because it does already feel so instantly cinematic in fact to me it almost feels to me like it could be two more movies honestly like not to say that you need to do that it just uh, it does i mean i feel like if you were to were to adapt this it would have to be like four hours long yeah it it feels um i think the thing also is about the prose is and you said it so you nailed it. It's like we see it. Like I can see it. Yeah. Like and, and some parts of the book where it's yeah. explaining stuff and you're getting in, especially on the second read. And this is what I would recommend is if you if you like the book, the second read, you might read it like I read it. Which is to say, when I read it, whenever it's establishing a scene, a, an area, a location, a particular set of characters, what they're wearing, the very specifics of like the guns that they carry, etc. I'm like, yeah. okay, this is the directing notes. Like if you've read any, like, especially Shane Black screenplays are like this, like stuffed yeah, yeah, yeah. with directions. Sure. All of that melts away once you've read it for the first time. And you just like the dialogue and the movement just happens at a clip that doesn't even happen the first time that you do it. And, and even, even the way that, even the way the, the prose feels like it was written 
like buy Colin Farrell in Miami Vice <laughs> or buy Christian Harrell. You know what I mean? Like it yeah. feels like it was written by a Michael Mann character, <laughs> which is I think the other thing that makes it also seem potentially trash and amazing to read. Like I I think it's I, I think that's the thing that gets me more in the headspace than anything else is that I feel like I'm I feel like it's being narrated to me, you know, <laughs> by somebody who's been lifted from a, a Michael Mann film. My um, mommy and daddy know me. You, that's right, how you read yeah, it in your right. head. <laughs> yeah, ex exactly. Exactly. Like, um, and so I think that that part of it's really fascinating to me. And I think, you know, I mean, I think the book is aware of that, too. I think this does feel a little bit like a, you know, he's thinking of, he's thinking of Heat fans first. You know, he yes. and Meg Gardner are taking care of us first before <laughs> anybody else. And I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with that. Um, but, um, but yeah, I overall, I, I yeah, I, I feel kind of, I don't know. I, I feel bad because I feel like I don't know how much I knew I have to add to this, but, um, but it does just feel like something, it feels like a, tr a, a almost this, like, elegy for the movie kind yes. of because yes. it's this thing of everyone who would be in this thing is either too old dead or you know or not well enough to be in it right so this is like the only form i can put this thing out in uh and and i trust you reader and enjoyer of heat to to take with you the voice of vincent hannah and the cadence of neil mccauley and all that and put it on here. Um, you're going to do so much work for me. Yeah, yeah. You're gonna, and, you're, but, but, you're, he, but, he, but the prose is where that helps, right? Because yeah, he yeah. just fully kind of gets you into um, just that that mode. And it's and it's this it is truly kind of a collaborative effort between author and, and reader in that regard, which I think is, you know, you don't get with every reading experience. Let's move into Paraguay 1996. This is the, one of the shorter parts of the book. Um, so, so, um, you know, we're not going to dive into too many aspects of it because really it's just, I guess the final sort of emphatic moments of Chris actually realizing his destiny in this landscape, working with Anna yeah. Lou and her family going and orienting himself, um, with their competitors who've been sniping at one another in back channels and going, okay, no, I'm the guy. This is what's happening. We are going to make money for each other. Otherwise, there's going to be trouble. And yeah. him being this kind of like unpredictable, like rogue element that is completely both out of time, but but completely on time because they're just not prepared for his, <laughs> his paradigm, I guess, if you like. Mm. He's a new paradigm in this landscape. And so we get to this moment where like the entire chapter is just the, the focal point is I'm your, I'm the guy. I'm I'm this guy now and and so it, it's so important as just this like tiny little breath and run up before mm -hmm. a huge chaotic sprawling like overlapping part six which um you know I, I personally was the way I've described it a couple of times on this show so far and so forgive me is like the I couldn't turn the pages fast enough. This was kind totally. of the start of that section where I was like, I yeah. can't turn the pages fast enough. I need this in my face right yeah. now. I stopped when I got home. I got home. I said hi to my wife and family. I had like 30 pages left on my first reading. And I was like, I just need 
15 minutes in my office to not talk to anyone. And I'm going to finish this right now because I can't bear to not know what happens in these last 30 pages. Blake, it even had that effect on me when I was re-listening to it, <laughs> like when I was listening to it on audiobook where, you know, I'd be like stealing away. I'd go to walk the dog and I'd bring my headphones with me or something because <laughs> I'd be like, no, I got to just keep getting through it because it's. <laughs> I got to just remember what happens next. And it's great. No, it's as I think you would say, it's unput downable at yes. this point. Kind yes. of. Uh, if it's not already for a reader, this is where it really hits its stride. Um, yeah. And it's, I, the, I think the other important element to this part is that it puts a sort of beginning of a line of clear demarcation on the relationships around Chris in terms of his relationship to uh, Charlene and his son and, and uh, Anna and where all that it, it kind of puts a um a pin in it to kind of create that inflection point to where these things ultimately then move into the into the sixth part um and which is a set a few years later right so i think the other po thing too that i not to bring back the gambling thing of it all but it feels like his moment of clarity yes this this part it feels like him realizing what this new frontier could mean for him and maybe offer him something that he never had before. Right. Yes. There's, there's that beautiful moment I'm paraphrasing here. Um, but that beautiful moment where he kind of says like Macaulay, Chirito, Trejo, like, what were we like bandito? Like, you know, yeah. like the last banditos of the 21st century. And like, this is, this is like the, they, you know, he, he meant, they mentioned it's, the, it's the electric now, right? It's yeah. the new, it's the new, new frontier. Right? It's, yeah. it's the, it's the argument that I'm so glad you brought that up, but it's the argument that has been present even, and particularly it's like, it's not subtext in other things. It's the text in public enemies of like, right. you're just, that, no, you're, that, yeah. you're, you're robbing yeah. stagecoaches. Like this is the 21st century. The FBI exists. Like there are, right. you can be tracked, you can do this. And like, obviously the Thing, things are changing and you might not be a part of them unless you decide yeah. to you're, make the choice to be a part of them. You're guaranteeing your obsolescence, yep. you know? Um, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, and, it's, it's, it's really, really, really crazy. But it doesn't feel the reason I say moment of clarity is because it doesn't feel like he's saying like, oh, yeah, we could do this and it's juicing me up and it's going to be great. You know, we'll wheel. And it's like it does feel like he's focusing on a thing and he's actually seeing the thing for for what it is, maybe for like the first time ever, as opposed to, you know, I'm with Neil. I'll do what Neil wants to do. Like, I'll offer my two cents, you know, whatever. Um, and I think that's really important here. The other thing I think is really interesting because uh, I think it, it starts to present itself anytime she's present in the book, but I think it does come to a head here is I, I don't know if you've spoken about this with anybody, but the the sort of correlation between Neil and Anna and like what they mean as kind of archetypes to Chris, like yes. this thing of they are both extremely, particularly the Neil that Neil becomes in heat right after yeah. the events of, of part four. Um, it, it, it puts Chris in a position where par I feel like part of the reason he falls in love with Anna is because she's Neil, yeah. right? Like, yeah. because he, it's a, it, there is a, a level a of comfort a in someone who's cool and methodical and can make decisions, <laughs> right? Like, There's a great chat I had with Hannah Blackman, who's a part of our show in yeah. talking earlier. I talked to her on her own podcast, Authorized Novelizations, and she was just like, he mentions Neil when they have sex for the first time, Blake. Like yeah. it's not sub, and I'm like, yeah, because like that, 
that person, that guide, that North star, he's always attached himself to someone who yeah. is a stabilizing force in his life. And yeah, you know, Neil was no, his barometer. Neil was like, that's yeah, it. Exactly. And, and what's funny is like, I, I really, really love the, um, there's a, a phenomenal, there's a phenomenal moment in, um, mission impossible rogue nation, which I think about a lot where Sean Harris's character says, you know, someone's talking about Ethan Hunt. He goes, Ethan Hunt is a gambler. Like, and I just <laughs> sure. like, and what a good Sean Harris. I didn't know I had it. I didn't know I had it. I brought it out. That was great. Bringing that to your show. That's where we can can get more of that. Um, But so there's like a, that Sean Harris impression um, and, and that Sean Harris line that just, that's Christian Hales. I'm like, Christian Hales is a gambler. Like that's who he is on every fiber of his being. And when you've got a gambler, you kind of need a, you need something because the the role of gambling like whether you've got a bank you know whether your bank mm. is your barometer or whatever the case may be or you've got an individual that can kind of go like here's your budget this is what you're gambling with to try to keep you in the world because that's how you actually orient yourself and you don't just spiral out of control because he is fucking impulsive like that's what i think man yeah. is so attracted to and makes that writ large is like everything that chris isn't like neil is why this book exists he's like yeah. You no, know, and 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 that's why Neil and Vincent are the two most alike things in the universe and they collide and that's why it's so profound for us. But it's like Vincent V Chris when he's actually at this level that he gets to is a different thing. And like Wardell yeah. is a different thing. And so it's like yeah. you, you take the two new paradigms, you throw them against it, and even though they might be formidable, it has a little bit more of that like no country for old men energy, which is like the great thing about Tommy Lee Jones's character seeing in Javier Bardem, he's like, I can, I know, I kind of can predict these guys' moves. I kind of know what to do, but I'm a yeah. step behind. And, and I still care about being alive. And this guy doesn't care about life. Like he's, he, and so that's, you see that transition of like, there's not a no country for old banditos attitude in Chris. It's like, no, I'm, I'm going to adapt. I'm going to survive and change. Yeah. And, and this is how I can do it. And, and he's, he's found his new North star with Anna. It's, I mean, it, it encapsulates what I, I you know, I'd like to dub this part, how Chris Shaharlis got his groove back kind of is like, what is like what this part is because it is him sort of, uh, he, d- it feels shocking a little yeah. bit when you're reading this, you're like, Oh, this is like, not, he is not thinking like the guy no. that I've been reading about and that I've watched, you know, on screen. Um, and I think that's the most engaging part about it. Obviously you get sort of the, the, the button on it with, um, you get the button on it with him talking to Anna and him and her, uh, you know, seeing the photo and remarking. And, and so you get that obvious sort of direct callback and it's asking you to immediately think about like who she is versus who Charlene is and like what, that, how, how Chris attaches himself to these people for different reasons and it's so great to get that and sort of that 1988 introduction to charlene in the same piece of work because you get to immediately just kind of oh yeah this is like the thing he felt with charlene was a gambling rush right it was like it was hot fire and i can ask you this Mm. 
that moment he meets Charlene, is that not the most casino moment of him? Oh, I can see. I can. Ev- can't you see it? I can it? see every part of it, dude. Like the it's way so his good. suits described, the way that they, they even have the needle drop in there. Like all of it. I'm just like, no, I can see all of the i and this is that that scene specifically is where i got depressed about the val kilmer thing <laughs> yes because i was like i can just see a ponytailed val kilmer looking fucking killer strutting through a <laughs> casino like i can see it in my head and it makes me so sad and that's why i mean i don't know that's why if they do make a movie it'll be just impossible because it'll just never live up to the beautiful thing we've all built in our heads while reading it but um but I think this, yeah, I think this part, it, I had mentioned before, you know, this book could almost be two movies. And I feel like this would be the beginning of a third movie. Like yes. this would be, or maybe the very, maybe like the postscript on that. But this is like, this is sort of that turning point because I do feel like it, it's important for, <clears throat> obviously with the book structured the way that it is. It's important for this to come right after the chaos in the desert. Yes. Right? Like there's it's there's a distinct choice being made there to have you immediately see the moment that Neil Macaulay becomes who he becomes and then dovetailing that into the moment Chris Shaharless turns into his version of a Neil Macaulay, right? Like yes. this sort of uh this sort of metamorphosis that takes place for both of them uh back to back. So my my last note was mainly that you know this this sequence um, and then what comes I mean some of the stuff before basically the whole Paraguay business yes I'm curious to know how long man had that in his head yeah um, because it does feel so and maybe this is part of the reason it I see it also clearly in my head it does feel like some amalgamation of miami vice and of course of course like there are so many and it's a part six thing but the shootout that then happens later towards the end of the book not the one on the freeway but the the other one in the warehouse yes um like that just immediately screams miami vice to me whereas like a whole lot of this is all black hat and it's it's fascinating to me because it it's placed uh, its placement in time is so crucial, right? Like it being 1996 is very helpful because if it's not, you're kind of like, do you know how technology works? <laughs> like, do you know what I mean? There's like a little bit of like a, and I think techno thrillers in that regard, that's where they trip up where it's like, they're always trying to be bleeding edge and then technology just moves so fast that by the time a script gets finished and a movie gets made, it's like already outdated kind of thing. Yeah. So I think the fact that this is placed in rest like in peace to Sandra Bullock's is the net, you know? Right. No, ex- exactly. <laughs> exactly. But by the time that this, you know, the fact that this is a period piece is very, I think helpful on that front, right. Where you're like, Oh no, like this all does feel like crazy groundbreaking shit. Even if, you know, even if we're not necessarily, we wouldn't think about it that way you know, 22 years later after the, after the book takes place. Right. Um, and so I, but I do think that I'd be curious to know how much of these ideas were floating around in his head that then made their way into Miami vice and black hat before they even hit the page here. And then he finally was like, Oh no, this, I get to like, is it, it feels like no coincidence to me that Hemsworth in black hat kind of looks like Chris Shaharless, right? Like, uh, yeah. And that, that's, <laughs> that's the weird, like snake eating its tail thing. It's like, Oh, was this kind of like, 
was it originated as a potential thread that he was like, no, I, this is enough of a thread to make its own thing and then go, or, or was it the other way of going, no, these ideas I wasn't as, as satisfied with. And it's an interesting question. It's an unanswerable is that was this a something or was it both of like, oh, I found a way that I can attack this material with a character maybe yeah. better suited to it or is it like inspired by oh i've got more to say about this you know it's it's so hard to and actually the whole say. the whole miami vice romance uh yes like with colin yes. Fert, like that whole thing feels very like this feels very similar to that so i would just be curious to know you like and again it's maybe unanswerable but i think part of the Look, reason if michael man answers my texts you know, we can figure this out. <laughs> I yeah, ask him for me and let yeah, me know. Um, I'll, I'll check in. Connor, man, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it and you, and uh, thank you and the whole film stage and B side and Cinephile Game Night family for being here with us on this. And thank you so much for uh, um, drinking late into the night uh, with me in New York City. <laughs> I have extremely fond memories. I feel like genuinely that that New York trip was a dream. Um, and it was so nice for you to be there because it was literally the gathering of, um, you know, some of my favorite people. And I, I, there's a funny story that I don't know if I've shared, but like Brianna Ashby, who did our great one heat minute art, was sitting with us when we were having drinks on one of the first nights I was in New York. And everyone was talking about Michael Mann and everyone was talking about heat. And she goes, does this just happen to you all the time? Like, <laughs> do people just come here? And I'm like, yes. And I'm, and this is what I'm okay with i'm like if you know she's like this is like film twitter i'm like yeah like this is i've but gathered... like the wholesome good part of it yeah yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> i've got i've the the curated best part of all of us just sitting around shooting the shit talking about michael mann it was such a great cross section of manheads, and um you being a part of it was so special and thank you so much and uh and uh thank you for spending multiple late nights out uh drinking and and being merry and enjoying um and the most unhinged q a i think we'd all seen which is great and bill gabiri <laughs> doing a monumental job of keeping that in check despite the herculean task oh that my q a was <laughs> what a legend yeah that the the i i want to shout out shout out to the the ladies of new york city who were so frothing al pacino that they were like at a hen's night that, that, yeah. that it was it was crazy it was absolutely crazy but no man thank you genuinely for doing this love your work can't wait for us to talk again on whatever show it is um always a pleasure yeah, thank you so much. Happy to be part of the crew. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line. 
prop or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Now, who knows Michael Mann better than someone who actually worked in the forward pass offices, has stalked through both past and present pre-production artifacts, who did the greatest thing ever, which is photocopy his own versions. (laughs) He's currently referring to his dossier right in front of him. Justin Lieberman, one of my favorite uh, guests that has come out of the woodwork and joined us on both Miami Nice and Collateral Confessions is now back. And we've decided to go into what seemingly is the smallest section of Heat to the Novel. But I found it a great platform for us to focus and talk about all of the things that we kind of just barely touched on in our last Collateral Confessions episode about all of the obsessions that I think you and I see. You've seen it firsthand. I've seen it innately as a, like an acolyte of Michael Mann. But it's kind of, it, it kind of validates the reason for this sort of one year later Paraguay before we get to the present times and all these characters start converging together. So I thought this would be a nice landing zone for us to come to. Yeah, Blake, thanks. I appreciate that. And, and always great to be back here and excited to talk about <clears throat> Heat 2 because I had a, I mean, anytime Michael comes out with anything, I have uh, an emotional and uh, heavy experience with it. And, and he too kind of took the cake, to be honest with you, right? I can watch a movie and kind of go back to that, but committing to a 500 odd page book a couple <laughs> times and and unpacking it and, and not loving it. You know, I got to say that right off the bat, it was, um, it was an experience that I didn't necessarily love. And when I did go back and reread it, I, I kind of, it, it reaffirmed my, my, my opinion, but I was also able to see in it, um, a, the things I didn't love about it, and B, really kind of um, just excavate and dig out all of the the, 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 the the manisms that are in it. I mean, yes, I, I've had, you know, it's been uh, nearly 20 years since I worked for him. Um, but in that 
three-year period, I, I, I read a lot of his, his notes. I read a lot of the scripts, certainly. I read a lot of his research and was part of his research. And, and knowing what I know about his research and his world, I saw it all when he too. I mean, yes. there's just, you know, and, and that was honestly maybe one of the first issues I had with it where I was so familiar with his purview on things and his expertise that I saw things that he returned to and he too, that frankly, we all saw, uh, saw you know, connections with Ciudad del Este, the dark <laughs> web, you know, you, you could draw parallels to nearly every one of his movies from he too. Um, but seeing that the the work in total was almost like, I mean, it really is like an opus. It is a Michael Mann opus. It's his life's work. It's everything that he's ever been fascinated with mashed together, baked into this epic story. And don't get me wrong. I say I didn't love it. There are parts of this that I fucking loved yeah. and cannot wait to see. And parts of it that I felt emotionally, parts of it that, repulsed me, disgusted me, but also moved me, brought me to tears, really choked up. I mean, so it, it gave me everything I wanted, um, but it was a complicated process and, and it was exciting just to have a piece of media to engage with on that level, um, especially in book form, which was so unique to Michael. Um, it, was, think, it was wildly exciting. And so, yeah. I think you and I have talked about this and this is what I wanted to dive into is that like, for people who are only like passingly familiar, you would know his work and absolutely you're going to see all the things that Justin and I are talking about. You're going to be able to, you know, if you've, if you've watched his films a lot and you love his work, you're going to go, okay, this feels like this and thematically feels similar like this, or there are thematic through lines and there are filmmakers and sites and even podcasts that make their time focusing on the connections and the themes and why they resonate, including this one. But I, the one thing that I only allowed you to like, eke out one sentence and I was like, nope, we, he too book club, we have to stop, was like, you have seen things be developed or ha that have been developed and consumed them. And so for you, and this is the other thing I think I've got the sort of, without that firsthand experience, but I've kind of got that issue as well is I've consumed everything that I can literally get my hands on. Now our great crew, Katie Walsh, my great co-host of Miami Nice, um, calls them our operatives. Like if we want a script from Michael Mann, if it's been put online, they can find it. You know, like we can read the Ferrari scripts in previous versions and all these other scripts of things. But that's the thing that I found reading it is like I could feel not only every script that I've read, every conversation, every interview, every you know, thought process that has gone into stuff. And this is like stuffed. It's like, I, I need to get, this is how I see my career. This is how I see thematic evolution of my work. This is how I see as the constants that are running through and heat too is a way to bridge because so many people have, I don't know, like whether it's because once you put your work out there, it's not yours anymore. Right. But it's that way where people mm -hmm. can go, what is the connective tissue between these texts and this is Michael Mann kind of rewriting that speculation. And so you can see yeah. that those things come to life and you're like, okay, did I need to see this? I'm not sure. And I had the same experience as you. Like I really enjoyed Heat 2 top to bottom. And I think the sort of exultant highs of it kind of helped me strip away some of those lows because I also think that when we're reading it, you know this from actually being on set, it's like so much of this would never make the screen. Like so much oh, yeah. of the, the 
the prose and the descriptiveness of different chapters, especially when we're orienting ourselves in Paraguay, in Seattle del Este, it, you just wouldn't even, we're not even going to be talking. You don't see anything. It's like two seconds, bang, you're in there. You're in the town, you're there. And then it's just the percussive kind of character beats that happen along the way and the economy of his storytelling. And it's like, actually, I think that that would be the way that it's elevated is like when you strip away all of the necessity to explain everything and you allow Michael Mann to just contextualize it with cinema and speed, um, then it, it feels like it, like then I start imagining the movie in my head and I'm like, what disappears? Well, all this disappears. It just is this scene. What disappears was this encounter and what disappears and it's this. Yes. And it's like, okay, now, now what's left stripping away that. And when just in full immersion, I'm like, actually, no, I, I can enjoy this. I can enjoy the whole thing, but it's, it was terrifying to me. Like this is heat yeah. too. This is heat too. It's scary. Yeah, I think reading the book with an editor's mind—not a not a, a literary editor, but like a film editor—is yes. is the way that I kind of um, got into it. I kind of settled into it because of what you talked about. Some of these paragraph descriptions about what type of gun they have—it just wouldn't be in the film. You know, no it wouldn't way. be there. And while I know Michael is obsessed with the details of what kind of gun, you know, I have here in my notes, I have in the chapter that we're going to talk about, they refer to Krisha Hurlis's gun twice as not a gun, but he, he says he puts around his, in his HMK USP. Yeah. Okay. So I just have HMK USP equals gun, you know? <laughs> and then later on when he meets with, um, when he meets with, um, I think Anna? it's Claudio. He, oh, Cla- oh, sorry, Claudio. Uh, yeah. Claudio, yeah. Um, when he meets with Claudio, he says again, like, his HMK USP is in his waistband. And it's like, his gun is in his waistband, you know? <laughs> so the idea of an HMK USP, like, if I'm not Googling it in that moment, those letters don't mean anything to me. Yes. It just means gun. And, and that's where Michael is writing that for himself. Now, one of the fun things for me was reading this and really being able to see where Michael started and stopped and where Meg Gardner took over. Yes. Um, Michael's language is so specific and so idiosyncratic. And it's frankly something that I have like a PhD in because it was part <laughs> of my job was to understand what he was writing and, and, and how to process that. So reading the book for me was fun just to kind of be like, oh, that's 100% Michael, that's 100% Meg. And I think he needed somebody um, like Meg to help almost build like a a scaffold around some of his language, because I think otherwise it would just, it would almost read like a technical uh, handbook in some some respects. But one of the things that you touched upon that I think was a big thing for me rereading it a second time was how brutally violent the book was oh yeah in excruciating detail that we would never see in film and it, no. it got me thinking if you really think about michael mann as an action film director and you know noir crime his films are certain they're certainly violent of course but they're not ultra violent and they're not gratuitous violence in everything from manhunter for example all of the heinous crimes that the tooth fairy does that dollar high does happens off camera we see the aftermath of it, but we don't see the murders. We don't see the home invasions. In this book, we see the home invasion. We yes. see every step. We see the footstep in the blood. We hear the cracking of the skull. We hear the rape. We, we hear everything, feel everything, and see everything. 
And in a way that was off-putting to me just because, you know, now I'm a father of two young kids. It just, it hit me in a way that it certainly would never have hit me when I was in my 20s. You know, it's hitting me now in, in a way that that just it really landed in, 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 a, in a really brutal way. But it got me thinking in all of Michael's films, even the murder in Heat, you know, the murder of the prostitute that Wayne Grover does. We see that off camera. Yes, we see the aftermath of the body in the trash can, which is horrific enough. But all of the gratuitous violence that happens in Michael's movies always happen off camera. And if you really think about it, you're kind of hard pressed to think about what is the most violent scene what is the bloodiest most violent scene in all of michael mann's work you know i don't know maybe it's 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 freddie downs you know freddie burning on fire in the wheelchair like there's not that much gratuitous violence in his work there's and um, emotional the, violence certainly even the yeah. most overtly violent moment that i can think of is mohicans when magua cuts yes. out the heart but you don't Off see camera. him cut the heart out he just lifts it up exactly and if you'd only seen the tv version as a kid as i did for many years you'd never saw that for years and then you see it you're like oh my god he cut like that it was enough to see him down on the ground and i think that that's the awareness and even the sound design is amazing too and i know that we talk about it you know in in a a now what people are going to be listening to is a previous episode of heat two book club but just to tag back into that from part two there's a moment where man is interrogating uh sorry hannah is interrogating the wife of the first wardell home invasion and she's relaying and recounting what happened in that space and i almost feel like if there's a way that parts of this book is trimmed like when people are thinking about it, i'm like oh no we just don't see the first home invasion we don't really see the first home invasion. We kind of see it in that interrogation. Like we see Hannah. Yeah, we hear it through her. We yes. hear it through her and we see flashbacks and we see like bits and pieces of it in the frenzy. Um, we don't have to, we don't have to have the dread or we see them going up to the house and then Ugh. Hannah showing up. Yeah. Like it's, 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 it's that kind of awful thing. And it's making those choices to be like, okay. But yeah, in, in also, I think what Michael, like, and, I think Black Hat has some pretty unbelievably brutal violence, but that stuff is, it's just, it also just shows you the reality of like one gunshot. That's what I also love about Michael Mann films. One gunshot is so much more than like, you usually see it in, whether it's a 90s neo-noir or you see it in like ridiculous 2020s action cinema. Sometimes it's like, instead of just uh, like someone getting shot with a gun and they're just down, they're out, their blood is being sort of drained out of their body. Like Chris gets hit in the clavicle and that's like the end of Chris. Whereas like in many action movies, it's like people get hit and they just keep going. And you're like, mm-hmm. if you got hit with like a real rifle or like a real gun, you're oh, gone, no. man, you're out. Like it's, it's over. And so I think that that's what he does in, you know, what, particularly in that scene with, um, um, Viola Davis in the climax of uh, Black Hat. Um, she cops oh, one. Amazing. Yeah. Was, I mean, that, like, that, yeah. that is a ruthless it's one scene. shot. That's it. One shot. Thanks. Yes. Absolutely. Ya. Absolutely. And not to call the, the, the violence in the book gratuitous, but it's, it's explicit and it's, it's something that he never do on camera, but, but reading that, you know, 20 odd pages of that first home invasion, it, it really unsettled me. I oh, mean, I was deeply. Like, I kind of asked myself, like, what am I doing? Like, why am I, <laughs> 
you know, digesting this, you know, in my bed next to my wife on a Tuesday <laughs> night. Like, what am I doing? What am I doing to put it that, in that's, my, that's, in my that's head? For you, that's for you to sit in your office. I did mine on a commute on a train. <laughs> I was like, I'm not, I can't relax and read Heat 2. I'm like, yes. listen to the yeah. Heat 2 soundtrack on Spotify, you know, started at this song and then just sit there and just read this book and consume it and be like, man, this is messed up. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I mean, that that word and, and going, you know, then that kind of opens up to Wardell as being, um, you know, probably the, 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 the most evil villain of, of his movies, of all of all of his characters, you know, yeah, it's explicitly a, it's a evil between dollar Ex- high. Yeah, explicitly. evil. I mean, there's not a there's literally not one saving grace about him, not one, mm. not one silver lining. Um, he shows no uh, compassion to anything. Um, I mean, at least dollar Hyde had the great scene with the tiger and, you know, and, and, um, Joan Allen, but yeah, it's, um, there's an evil to this book that I think is, um, you know, it, it, maybe it's impressive really, but it was an evil that, that got to me in a way that, um, Wayne grow or, or dollar hide or, or any of the other, um, kind of darkness in his movies never really landed. Um, so that was one of the things that just really kind of like just punched me in the in the mouth and kind of put me back on my heels reading it. And then, you know, and then there's such like a, a, a shock bang motion, you know, um, propulsive energy to the book where you're never really able to settle in one place because all of a sudden, boom, I'm in Paraguay and boom, I'm back in Mexico or I'm in Chicago, L.A. You know, you're you're kind of moving and you're it's so exotic, you know, Ciudad, Ciudad del Este and the Paraguay sequence, you know, when people talk about diversity in film or story or narrative, you know, a lot of times people talk about, you know, they kind of use diversity as, as, you know, black or white, you know, African-American or, or Caucasian. Or, I mean, talk about diversity and, and that's been something that Michael's championed forever. And he's been, I think, one of the, the best examples of a Hollywood A-list director building his films from a genuine organic place of diversity but his idea of diversity is so broad and it's so much broader than than i think what 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 we normally think about in our day-to-day life that again it's it's unsettling in a way you know when we're talking about a taiwanese crime family living in south america who is educated in london and you know uh, obsessed with american westerns i mean it's this kaleidoscope vision of humanity that is so exciting but it it asks you to consider diversity um in a very um specific way and and kind of demands you to get comfortable with these you know these asian people speaking spanish or these asian people with uh you know traditional kind of spanish names you know it's 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 a little unsettling. It, it's a little disarming. It takes some time to get used to and realize like, oh, Felix isn't a South American, isn't, isn't a traditional South American Latin person. No. Felix is a Taiwanese, uh, 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 you know, Taiwanese. He's like Arab a Taiwanese. He's a Taiwanese money brat too. Like he's like, he's a wealthy kid. Yes. And the way, yeah. and and I think that that's where, that's man's great entry point is like, who has the wealth? And it's that sociological brain of his. It's like, who has the wealth? Well, in these towns, these Taiwanese people have fleed from Taiwan because they don't want to be under any kind of 
Chinese oppression and and the constant conflict that still goes in on in you know contemporary geopolitics, obviously starting way back then. You've got this. They've got a stack of money. They go and establish themselves in a gam in a gambling app in a gambling institution in in that country. They make a, a stack of money, but also because they're wealthy. And there now is an international global identity for their family and their footprint. It's like, what do you have to do? Well, you send your kids to the best schools in the world. And that is either going to be an Ivy League school in the United States or, you know, uh, over to London, go to Yale or something like that. Go to Yale Business, develop the contacts and decide how you're then going to propel them off into other lives. It's like, it's the Isabella trait from Miami Vice, which is Isabella, Chinese Cuban woman living in Cuba meets this South American crime family is a businesswoman who potentially traveled overseas, was educated overseas. If she wasn't educated in Cuba, she was potentially educated in like South America or Mexico city or something like that, a big university there. She meets this crime family and it's just as natural for her to just be bombing around the streets of Geneva as it is for her to be in Miami, as it is for her to be in Paraguay. You know, it's, it's, it's the barriers of the world when you've got that kind of level of, you know, you really have fuck you money. Um, you know, you've yeah. got that, that, that kind of thing where there's no, there's no borders. And then your identity just becomes this big, like mo- your culture is less about the specificity of the international location you're in. It's about like, I, I look at Felix, who's Anna's brother in this book. And I'm just like, he's like the rich kids of Instagram, you know? And she's like, yes. I'm going to, I, I, she's like a, um, uh, kind of Rothschild like she wants to be the person that has so much money that is never spoken about (laughs) and Felix is like I need to be the guy who's super flashy and all of these attractive flashy you know criminals that are out there I I want to emulate that what's the point of us having all this money if you don't show it off and I think that that's the total like light years difference approach between each of those two people and that's where we come to specifically in this part of the book which is like this is Chris self-actualizing, he's, you know, he's that postmodern adrift person. He's self-actualized now in Paraguay. He's becoming that part of himself. And and now, like, he's orientating him in this world where it's like, yeah, I can just, there are no more borders and no more boundaries if we make so much money and have this access and we supply people who want money and our supply versus demand is always there that I can truly become invisible. And there's no, like, there's no weird border crossings where I have to, be disguised and there's no like fake names and there's no this i'm just this guy and i'm untouchable and it's this awakening right now in this part and i think that that's that's the whole uncomfortable thing is like there's a certain layer of like he's a bank robber who has to have a fixer to get him across the border to fake his name to get him a job and then after a while he realizes wait if i'm in the next tier i'm untouchable yeah yeah this is, um, I don't want to kind of psychoanalyze Michael, and, and I, I um, am not a, an expert in kind of Judaic studies, but I think there is something, in all of Michael's work, I think there's something inherently Jewish in his work. I know we talked on an episode ago or, or whenever with Katie about how he kind of always centers Nazis, or a yes. lot of times centers Nazis as kind of evil incarnate. I think there's something... Um, that Michael responds to kind of creating these kind of nomadic figures in at least this uh, this kind of Asian um, diaspora kind of coming over to better themselves and provide a better life for their children. I think you could draw a parallel to 
you know, turn of the century Jews fleeing Eastern Europe, coming over to America and yeah. other parts of the world to set up a, um, a better life for themselves. And I, I knowing Michael's background and knowing the history of his, his grandparents coming over and settling in Chicago and working hard to provide for his family. I, I see parallels in that. I don't think it's by accident that he, he has kind of used the, the, the Asian, you know, the Asian experience kind of freeing, China coming to South America where there is more opportunity there and more opportunity to make something of yourself using your hands or your intellect or tapping to the resources that are there. I do think that there's something inherently Jewish about that, that, that Michael is, is working with. Um, and he does it. He does the same. I, he does the yeah. same thing for Vincent Hanna's backstory too, about, you know, he's, he family fleeing Europe in the war and then coming over here and the yeah. immigrant experience resonates with him really strongly. And he sees like little, little, uh, uh, familiarities from his own experience and he can flesh them out because he's so familiar from his own perspective, but then is able to go, okay, well, how do I expand this out into, you know, other very sociologically specific experiments that have happened yes. for other, other, other um, uh, ethnicities and other cultures that have come over and, and landed in America or the Americas. Cause I think that that's the other thing is it world war two in Europe. Um, and then subsequent, you know, colonial wars and things like that, that were happening um, in the sort of the, the middle of last century. It's like so many different cultures created footprints, whether it was like Australia, like there was a boom of, of population and different cultures that came to Australia post-World War. Like my my family, especially my mum's side of the family, all came over because like they were Maltese and Malta was like just bombed to smithereens in World War II because it was a British naval base. And so, so many Maltese people live and, and created a community in Australia. So many people from wars in, you know, Lebanon came in waves to Australia. Syrian refugees come to Australia. You know, there's all these different things. And then Greeks in World War II as well, like huge Greek populations now have called Australia home for like, you know, decades and decades. And we've been um, enriched by all this sort of cultural diversity, but it's forced. It's like, it's all this laws yes. of displacement, right? And then who thrives? Um, and these communities banding together to do it. Yeah, the, right. The, the smartest, hungriest, hardest working people, the people that are able to identify the, the in and the edge and work as a family unit to achieve that. Um, you know, I think in even Isabella's case, like, what do we know about Isabella? We, we don't know a ton, but we know about her mother. Yes. You know, we know about her family. We know about her grandmother here, you know, with, with Anna and Felix, we know about their family. Um, there is a really delicate kind of um, nod to fam family yeah. and tradition through these characters that we have no business knowing anything about them. I mean, Isabella and <laughs> any other filmmaker's hands is just a completely, um, you know, a void of a character that's just a, uh, you know, sexy money laundering drug dealer <laughs> or whatever, you know. But here we have, you know, the beautiful scene with her grandmother you know, knitting on the first floor as she brings coffee up to Colin Farrell, you know, in bed in, in, in Miami Vice. So I think there is something that's always kind of rooted in his uh, his family's experience. And, and I think that's that's kind of uh, something he builds he builds from. Um, the thing about the chapter, so part five, um, something that happens in that chapter that I kind of recognized the second time around and, and was able to kind of 
recognize it as a theme to, and traced it back to uh, all of Michael's work, um, starting with, with Thief, is that there's always a moment where the protagonist comes in and sits down across from an antagonist, face yes. to face, eye to eye, right? In, in, in Thief, we have Frank coming in in the beginning, um, sitting down to demand uh, Skaggs' money. You know, the money <laughs> that was in Skaggs' pocket belongs to me. You know, he comes down and he sits down with the antagonistic force and he says, I am the guy. I am the protagonistic force that is going to be challenging your antagonistic force. We see it in Heat, certainly, with, with the famous, you know, Kate Manalini scene. We see it in um, Collateral with Jamie Foxx and Javier Bardem. We see it in Public Enemies with Christian Bale and and, um, and uh, Johnny Depp. Um, we see it in, in, in Black Hat, not, not so much sitting down with, with the hacker, um, but they have this kind of relationship that they're talking to each other you know, through these kind of encoded messaging. Yeah, p- but there's, piss, there's off this... go- piss off ghost, man. It's like, it's, 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 yes. they're slightly, they're slightly obscure it. And even, even though exactly. it's not, and even though it's not talking to Dollarhide, it's the Will Graham Hannibal Lecter scene. Like that's 100%. Where, you, where you talk, where you're talking to an avatar for whoever your key antagonist is. Like you have to sit down and. Yes. Get, yeah. So one thing reading the it the back. second time, <laughs> yeah. exactly. And saying, I am the guy. Right. And that, that I think is actually almost one of the lines from this chapter is, you know, Chris Shaherlin says, I am the guy. I am the one that's fucking you. And we're going to talk about it and I'm going to leave here. And if there is a target on my back, so be it. I'll, I'll deal with that. But I just want you to know that, you know, what I'd like to do is what, achieve equilibrium and have us all go on and make money. So I thought that was really interesting kind of seeing this like, you know, because if you also, too, you step away from Chris Shaherlis for about four years. This is the last point we see him till we yes. see him in L.A. with Anna four years later. Um, and it's this it's even while it's a short chapter, it's kind of the kindling that gets us ready for that final explosion in part six, which. I mean, give me part six and inject that in my veins. I mean, for any, for any, for any ill thoughts I had about the first half of the book, I mean, part six was, I think, I truly think it was like a masterpiece of storytelling. Yeah. I thought yeah. it was so, part, so great. Parts, and the way part it came six, together. part six, just yeah. it's, and that's the other challenge that I think I had with it structurally is we have been attuned to watching this huge sprawl in heat this wide um this wide sort of canvas and a group of characters that are all converging and then what happens in the book is that we have like a brief the briefest convergence and then a tease of convergence because the teams are working in parallel but then we're we're apart like we're scattered in the wind like things are happening our character we don't we don't know where they are and it's like oh like i just i've yeah like there's something I'm missing and I don't know how to articulate it. And then you get to six and you're like, oh, I know what I was missing. It's that convergence. I'm dying mm-hmm. for these characters to be in the same space because that's the that's the whole trick is that even though LA is massive, by the end of Heat, you know they're all converging on the same thing and it becomes this heightened yes. experience where you're just dreaming of it. And so that when six comes around, you're like, oh, my word. Yeah. 
they're all back together. All our players are on the board mm. from the entire thing. And so very deliberate in that case. And then the structure of the rest has to complement it, which is altogether pretty incredibly tough. But here, yeah, it's like that right now it's like sets you up and you're like, oh, part six, gimme. I'm in. Well, what I love what I love about part six and not to step on anyone else who's, who's analyzing that, but what I love about part six is we have these character introductions. Again, we're kind of reintroduced to Wardell now in LA. It's this hotel, you know, motel or house manager. We meet Vincent at a crime scene. We meet Krisha Hurlis again, kind of brokering this high power meeting with Anna and, and, and Felix and these other players that are coming in from Singapore and, we're kind of reintroducing ourselves to these characters and and setting the board for this final confrontation because the the the, the structure of the book where we kind of step away. I mean, the, I think it's part four where it takes place in Mexico. You know, that was long. Yeah, <laughs> we watched that hotel down there, that motel down there, and talk about the the escape routes and the the the, the strategy that Neil and the guys are going to do to knock off that that hotel. I mean. We spent a lot of time with that. I mean, I I was I got a little bored, frankly, to be honest with you, <laughs> part four, because I was just like, now listen, it was all he knows what he's doing, so he's building us up for something that's explosive and and certainly with 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 Gabriella and and the mom and, and everything, it's it's a, a worthy payoff, but he does not pull punches. He really takes his time setting that up and God damn, I could write you a sketch of that that motel <laughs> by memory right yeah, yeah, now. Yeah. yeah. You that, know, where the parking lot is and everything. I, I know, know where the parking lot is. I know where the refine the, the yeah. abandoned refinery yeah. is. I can tell you yeah. how many cars come in every hours, how people come yes. up and down. I also know the inner snaking hallways now. Like I could tell you that yes. because it's just like, but that's I think that's the thing that you and I now know, like from a cinematic editor's point of view. It's like, I don't need to yeah. be told anything. I just need no, to see no. Neil in the refinery. Yes, and then I exactly. do a cutaway yeah, that's a, that's a, do a cutaway to yes. Torito in a car and then a cutaway to Chris yeah. standing guard or standing in like a or like crouching in a, a bunch of bushes and seeing cars come up, seeing cars, these guys do a conference and then it's on. But then when you hit the action, it's like, oh my God, like that's the thing that he does. That like he all of this, whether it's for his own preparation or for ours, and it's implicit rather than explicitly talked about or shown. It's just sort of the color um it's yeah. it's there it's it's happening um and it's it's funny that what like what could just be on the cutting room floor but it's like that for the book you're like you're in it you're just right there and you're in, oh, you're, you're trapped in it i mean you're really you're trapped and you're, you have no hannah yeah. you know you have wardell that is still this kind of antagonistic force that's coming but you still don't really know what he, who he is um, you don't really know you're you're kind of detached from Shaherless at that point because you're kind of through Neil's point of view. Yes. It's it's an interesting structure. I mean, it kind of so coming back from four, then going back to five, where you have this kind of Paraguay 96, Chris Shaherless is kind of confronting um is it, I think it's Claudio, and he's kind of saying, like, I'm the guy here. And then that then propels us to to LA in, in 2000. It's just it's a uh, it's a wild structure, you know, it's just a wild structure. So when we get to part six, we need that reintroduction of all these characters and where we see them and we're re reintroducing ourselves to them. They're doing the thing we want to see them do. We want to see Neil Hanna survey a crime scene. Yes. You know, we want it. We want to, we want him barking at the medical examiner, <laughs> his hand out of her pocket, her hand out of his pocket, and, <laughs> you know, to tell Drucker to go knock on doors and all this stuff. We want to see Shaherless 
in a sharp suit with short hair and glasses in a beautiful hotel or, or no better at the racetrack, you know, with <laughs> Anna, we want to see Wardell in a, uh, you know, an old sweaty car driving down Sunset Strip going from one shitty motel to the other. You know, finally, each character is kind of in their place that they they meant they're meant to be. And, and that's just like reorientates us. And then from that point on, you're just in for the ride. Yeah, I think I think for me, just because my the, the part that I was focused on was all about Chris Shaherlis. That was, I would say, is aside from the the violence and the 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 two things about the book that I I just rubbed up against, I didn't love was I didn't like the um I didn't like the the, the parallel in Chicago that both Neil and Vincent were in Chicago at the same time. I feel like that detracted a little bit from their collision in LA in the movie because, yes. you know, it's almost like Highlanders, right? It's like these two <laughs> gods that are finally clashing against each other. The idea that these two gods were kind of running parallel, very close parallels in Chicago, I think kind of um, deflates some of the, the existential kind of um, weight that their collision has in, in, in LA I also thought it was just silly that Casalis was with Vincent Hanna in Chicago. West Studi's character. So with the him in the Chicago. only reason why I can I have to yeah. I have to disagree with you yeah. there is because one thing that I've been fascinated about for for years, decades probably, and talked about it extensively on Heat is there, there's that moment where they spot Neil outside of the the the, the Platinum Exchange, and or mm-hmm. Neil Neil hears them. And then he goes inside and he takes Chirito and he takes Chris and they drop everything and they leave. And he looks to Bosco, who is kind of like his main man in heat in his crew. Yes. And Bosco goes, you know, shrugs his shoulders, like, I don't know, I don't know what we're gonna do. Do we take him? Do we not? He looks to Schwartz and Schwartz is like, take him. And he looks to Casals and Casals goes, No, don't take him. And he listens to Casals. And I've always gone, why him? Like, what is, the, and that's obviously, yeah. love that about that crew. Cause like Druck, like Drucker is up on the roof, you know, Drucker, again, yes. a guy who was with him for the Albert Torina thing. And he was, he's, he's gone, yeah. uh, you know, um, he and Casals join Vincent when they go and um, interrogate Hank Azaria's character. So they go and do all that stuff. But I, I love that Casals is there. Cause it just made, like, I was like, oh, he knows Vincent. He's known Vincent for decades. He works, with, he, he can trust him implicitly. He never has to worry about not having his back. He knows he's the guy. And I just, there was one thing like, it is convenient, yes. And it's also the same thing of like, I couldn't also believe that Micah was there. I was like, oh, surely Neil and Chris may have been together. Shari- maybe, yes. Maybe, yes, yeah, but Sharito's also there, yeah. Sharito's there. I was like, oh, okay, well, yeah. I mean, these guys are yeah. good. We know they're good, but it's also like, sure. Um, seeing them to, all together there and like maybe Michael goes away for a short stint and then comes mm-hmm. back out again by the time we see him in heat but it's just that thought or feeling that oh like this is a bit convenient but that that I'll forgive the conveniences because that moment in heat is so key to heat it's rooted in their history yeah. it's yeah. rooted there and then so all that other stuff informs it because it's like oh finally when he comes Casals is his guy like he's the guy uh, and, yeah, and, and, yeah, f- fair enough. I, I could, I could, I could get by with that. I think for me, you know, West Studious, you know, obviously he's Native American. He has such a an incredible look that is 
is indigenous to California, right? There's that kind yeah. of that that native look there that I thought like seeing him as a as a representative of kind of the the the, the Mexican Native American identity of California felt so California to me. So like if it was Drucker in Chicago, I probably wouldn't. Have oh, you would have you wouldn't have blinked. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I went to blink, but Casales being this kind of Mexican American or, or Native American felt so rooted to California that um, that that was something I bumped up against. But I, but I do like your reading of it. And then the last thing was um, was Chris Shaherlis, and, and certainly um, far be it for me to question you know Michael's understanding of his own characters. But you know Chris Shaherlis, he's what probably thirty five in Heat. Yeah. Um, we know that he spent some serious time in in prison. You know with Neil. Um, we see him with his, you know, expert handling of firearms and heat, you know, the, the famous story that the, uh, that the, the army, the Marines showed new, new recruits, uh, Christian <laughs> Val Kilmer reloading his gun M16 and basically saying like, if an actor could reload a gun this flawlessly, you guys all should. So well, Chris, we saw his, Val Kilmer was yeah. 36. Thank you to John Glenn, who's 36. already appeared on the, on this show, but in our, in our, uh, Patreon crew's Discord, he mapped out all the actors' ages um, from the original nice. heat. So to say, like, if anyone actually survived in the to the 2000 era or were alive in the 1988 era, these are the ages that these actors would have been. So therefore, if we're, like, thinking about fantasy casting, these are good ages to start thinking about how old these people might be. Oh, fun. Okay, so it's 36 in heat. So the, the idea that that... So, and then what do we know about him in Heat? We know that he's a compulsive gambler. We know that he has issues with bookies. He kind of overextends himself to bookies in Vegas in the Super Bowl. We know that he's slightly undisciplined, right? We see that in the in the refinery, the metal refinery, when Neil says, let's walk. You know, Chris says, I'm almost there. And he says, no, now, right? So there's a hint of... of, of of uh, undisciplined kind and of the gamble. thrill a, seeking. Yeah, he's a gambler. And the gambler, the, the yeah, the, the impulsive gambling. Him assimilating into now he's untethered, no Charlene, no Neil. He's untethered in Mexico, in Paraguay, total fish out of water. The idea that he kind of assimilates so quickly into this very high level dark web keep in mind this is 1995 1996 the web he may never have seen a computer at this point you know like <laughs> the web's just getting started the idea that he kind of steps into this world of of dark web and kind of under learns it and understands it so quickly and has this kind of preternatural instinct for geopolitics <laughs> it just felt it felt a little like our problem I'm assuming it's a, a similar problem for you. Our problem with Hemsworth's character in Black Hat, you know, he's this MIT guy that looks like Hemsworth. He's also a <laughs> weapons specialist. He's also a super hacker. He's, you know, it's like, it's a little too much of, of kind of the Captain America syndrome where it's like, they're great at everything. And part of the reason why I love Keaton, you know, what do we see Chris Hurl is doing first? He's, he's doing an errand in Arizona, picking up explosives, you know, like, He's not doing, he's not on the pole that Sharito is hacking into the system, right? Like he's not in that dealing with that tech stuff. So 
I kind of liked Chris being a little bit more blue collar and keeping his hands a little working class and dirty. And when they kind of threw him into this world in Paraguay, it just felt like a little bit of um, a little bit of leap of faith there. Yeah, and that, again, these are these are nuances that probably most people aren't thinking about, but obsessive no, like no. us are getting hung up on. We we do. I, I was yeah. just gonna say the one thing that I liked about it, and I think that the time passing helps to ingratiate Chris into the world or help him be absorbed into the world because the time jump goes from like 95, 96, Mexico City, Paraguay, then Paraguay, 96. The thing that I liked about Chris's entry point into the world was that he saw that there was a deficiency with their entire operation, which is that they weren't able to spot threats, his whole job. And that's what I think I, why I relish part three, particularly for the early stages of Chris is because he doesn't know anything about the dark web. Then he's just a security chump, right? Like, Nate sets him up being yes. security. He's like, you can just be there. The thing I loved about it is that he's looking around at this makeup and going, there are threats everywhere. These people are just blind to them. And his language is, I can go talk to a guy I can say a prison, I can say a town, I can do this. I've been a coast-to-coast -coast robber. My whole job is to see if there's a cop that's undercover that's coming to get me. And some of these people will, who, like, later on in life have to be much more aware of international um, law organizations or law law, um, law enforcement are going to be, in, you know, infiltrating their people. They don't have to be thinking about this in Paraguay in 1996. They don't give a shit. Like, there's no like Miami cops that are undercover in 96 that, you know, other than maybe like some random storyline on Miami Vice, but like it, the TV show, but not like anything in, in a big way. But that's what I loved about him just standing there and seeing threats and going, You're under threat. These people are threats. This person is a threat. And that's really all that he can do. That other stuff, I think, then leans into the gamble. The gamble is if I do this and you do that and we have a hookup here. And he, he even has to do that whole thing of like he eventually goes to Kelso because like Kelso is the guy. You know, he's like, oh, I'm going to yeah. go to someone who yeah, I trust yeah, yeah. who can actually do this thing and explain it to me. And then like Neil, like look at Kelso with as much incredulity as Neil does. Like, how do you get this information? Like he doesn't understand how it all works, but he kind of gets the gist. But that's where I think that that's where the part three, that foundational element first. I'll, I'll take the leap because the first part of it, yeah. and this is what I loved about the feeling, is that Chris is just all about what is wrong. Like, what is wrong yeah. about this guy? And straight away, he sees that other American guy. He's like, there's something wrong about this guy. He doesn't know what this Yeah, yeah, you're right. You know, you're... Yeah, you're totally right. I forgot about that. That that his entree into that and with that the Connecticut guy, right, where he... He, he kind of spots him as a fake. Yeah, you're right about that. That's that is a very good point, and that does it does kind of, take a leap of faith that does though, grease all, the wheels. All these it guys are, the wheels a little bit to get him in. Yeah, all these guys are, you know, as Michael Mann said, I'm never going to make it. I'm ne I'm never going to make a show or a movie where people are not living the like the the highest expression of their existence or whatever. He's like, I want people at like yeah, that heightened, at, heightened, heightened self, yeah. heightened self. Yeah, like, and so. Yeah. Chris is Chris is in this environment and his heart and self is like actually, you know, he's a gambler, so he sort of gets the inherent gamble of this contemporary crime because it's it is a gamble. It's like I'm gonna make something in a Taiwanese factory and then I'm gonna have it shipped to Cuba <laughs> or to Haiti. And I have to I'm yeah. my gamble is I've got to pay these people to make it, I've got to pay someone to ship it, I've got to pay off a harbor master here to do it. I've got to pay all these things and it's all speculative and it's all a giant gamble. But if we get the money and then we sell it to this person, we all make money. Like I'm, I'm the person at the end that does it. So I feel like 
for me, I, I was like, that's enough of a stretch that if it's done right in the film, it's particularly about how he ingratiates himself and just being able to the ability to spot the heat around the corner, so to speak. I feel like that makes sense for him. And that's where I was like, that's, that's actually how I can access this to my to yeah. my one question. Yeah. I know it's a question that's come up repeatedly. I do not see a world in which there is a heat three, but lots of people feel like there is. And I see the ending of this novel without sort of going into the detail that we're going to go into it, obviously in the next episodes, but I don't see this as heat two and there will be a heat three and a heat four. I just cannot imagine. Yeah. I don't, I don't see that. I think, I mean, um, with, you know, Chris has no reason to come back. Um, and a, a hunter is never satisfied with the prey. The hunter's only satisfied with the hunt. So Hannah's most natural disposition is, is hunting. Yes. Um, so he, he's left in, 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 in a good place, right? He's left in, in, a, in a, I mean, the last line is just so beautiful. It's so fun. Um, but Chris has no reason to come back and, 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 and Hannah's not going to, to Bhutan or, or wherever they're ending up. And, <laughs> exactly. Um, I can't imagine Vincent yeah. Hannah upping and going to Bhutan. Like it's not going to happen. Yeah. He, he's a no. jurisdictional guy. He, he's, it, it, I, I completely believe I'm like, no, this is the difference. If it's been a tale of two antagonistic forces, it's Neil, it's Chris. With Neil, there was nothing more truly existentially dissatisfying for Vincent Hanna than actually capturing Neil and killing him. He kills the person who means the most to him in the world, who he is most alike in the universe. And there is like a fracturing of an atom at the end of that thing that leaves him in disarray. And we see a little bit of that disarray by 2000 because he's losing his step and he's less organized and he's not as sharp as he always has been. And it's like, because maybe he hasn't had elevated experiences that have even become close to the experience that he had with Neil and he's like losing a step. And so that ending- There's there's an emptiness. Yeah. yeah. And so that ending with Chris is like, what else is captured? Revenge has been, he's had, he's closed a chapter that has, gone unclosed but the very nature of chris says why would chris ever go back chris made a choice yeah yes. he made a choice and he's he doesn't he's in the wind he's gone yeah like well and frankly his choice was with charlene and dominic that's yes. you know he that's the choice that that motivates his his real decision his super objective of not coming back right like <clears throat> his motivation always was to get back to charlene and dominic and and seeing where they are and leaving them where they are, um, there's no reason for him to come back. I mean, certainly it's not to get revenge on Neil, uh, on Vincent, because he could, he had that opportunity. And um, no, I don't, I don't see that. I think, I think the thing, you know, the 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 story's left exactly where it should be. And frankly, the only <laughs> part three I want to see is just Neil, um, Vincent, and Nate you know, trading stories at the bar, <laughs> you know, I hope Hannah becomes part, like part a three is a, <laughs> Part three is 150 pages of those two just having conversations every day. That's, that's oh my you God. know, Ex- that's absolutely bloody no- the, the great documentary, Bloody Nose, Empty Pockets, except it's got Nate and Vincent Hannah. 
Firstly, I'll say thank you. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. We're going to line up more opportunities to talk about things. I know you and I are obsessed with Ali and I plan, I'm just throwing it out there in the universe that in 2023, we're going to go deep on Ali because um, it's something that I feel like we need to. Huge thank you to my special guests, Justin Lieberman and Connor O'Donnell. You can't find Justin Lieberman online. He is a slippery customer indeed. Um, but uh, we we are in contact with him. So the only way you're going to be able to hear from him again is stay tuned here. Subscribe to One Hit Minute Productions. This has been part five, Paraguay 1996 of the Heat 2 book club. You can find Connor O'Donnell over at thefilmstage.com or search the B-Side podcast anywhere that you get great podcasting stuff. Thank you so much to both of those gentlemen. Connor is on Twitter at scruffy looking. Uh, and instead of double O it's double zero in scruffy looking. Thank you so much for listening. We'll catch you on another episode of the heat Two book club and of all things going on one heat minute productions just around the corner. And it feels like such a 20th century movie. It feels like something David Lean would have done or tried to do uh, when he still had that kind of currency. And even then he might not have succeeded. It's incredible. Cause like, if you, if you don't have time to watch all five seasons of Lost, you can just watch Fearless. <laughs> not a week goes by that I don't think of the ending of Gallipoli. It's left a mark, a uh, year of living dangerously. Uh, you know, and then something like Last Wave, even that's so uh, deeply embedded with the land and the story of the land, the historic place. You know, I don't know that I'd seen very many movies at that point in my life that had such a down ending and they had such a, you know, sort of strong sense of folklore uh, 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 attached to it as that. And something always so poetic and lyrical about Peter Weir's work. Gallipoli was the first movie that ever traumatized me, and I don't think I ever really recovered from it. (laughs) And I'm still upset that they played it in school. Like, I don't think it's actually possible to make an, they say it's not possible to make an anti-war movie, but I think Peter Weir pulled it off. Because no one watches that movie then thinks, I want to go to war. Uh, Peter Weir is the greatest director that Australia has ever produced. Like, bar none, hands down. Like, no one else has even in the room. I think you have covered some really titanic filmmakers and some really titanic films so far, but I I truly think what makes Peter Weir special and what makes you doing this one special is we don't talk about Peter Weir that way, and we should. Peter Weir is one of those guys who I don't get why he isn't a bigger name, why he isn't more in that rarefied air, yes. because I think film for film, he's one of our very best filmmakers. He has brought his A-game repeatedly to many (laughs) properties. There are films of his that I hold very dear. Fearless, uh, you know, uh, The Mosquito Coast. I will fight somebody if they talk bad about The Mosquito Coast. It's, man, I love that movie. But in general, I just think he is a special filmmaker, a smart, lyrical, um, hallucinatory filmmaker. He's a very dreamy filmmaker, and I don't think he gets his due. You know, Master Commander is one of my all-time favorite movies. Uh, you know, it's easily one of the best movies of the last 20 years. It's, uh, uh, you know, it's a grand scale. There's a historical backdrop to it. But at the same time, there's such an intimacy in the relationships. 
which I think is not just a great film and one of the last great epics in the truest sense. Um, I, I think is actually kind of a sliding doors change point moment in, in cinema history. I think 2003, when that comes along and it is a an old fashioned, you know, we don't make them like that anymore type film. I think if Master and Commander spawns a franchise at that point, the entire cinema landscape globally is completely different. That That's the movie that I wanted to see 10 of those, you know. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah, I know they're big fans of Fast and Furious and everything, and God bless you, but Master and Commander <laughs> should have been. It's one of those things, again, I I am not, uh, I'm not a seafaring man, sir. <laughs> but there is a sense of authenticity. There's a sense of really watching a, a genuine dedication to recreating history unfold on a big screen in front of you that can't help but inspire just genuine admiration and awe. If you're going to pick a film where he really brings every one of his skills to the table, it's Master and Commander. I think you picked the right one, man. Yeah, very excited to see what you you pull you pull out of this, Blake. That's right. Our next series is Peter Weir and Russell Crowe's Master and Commander. The series is called Podcaster and Commander. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C., As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 